0: Nobody thinks we got the balls to pull this podcast off. (laughs) What's up? You're listening to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. I'm here with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, we're going to be talking Widows, if no one got that reference. The drop. We're also going to be talking Fantastic Beasts, Anderson Pack, and a couple of other awesome movies and eh, some okay albums today. But before we jump into it, if you're listening and you support the podcast, please hit that subscribe on YouTube soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod itunes or wherever you're getting this podcast and also share us with a friend we appreciate any support and any feedback you give us we want to grow so help us with that jumping right into it little mix mm. Mm. little mix <laughs> so interestingly enough I, did you ever watch the x factor fuck no come on dog
1: <laughs> if there's one thing that is so played into ground it's watching people sing and, like, become champions at that. Like, I'm just so over it. And it's, like, talent shows, I'm all about talent shows if you exclude singing and dancing and Ooh. do other talents. so but that's not what people
0: like. So you would be into, like, America's Got Talent because a comedian wins almost every single year. Or a magician. It's, like, one of those two. Yeah, exactly. So X Factor, in t- what, 2011?
1: K X Factor.
0: Yeah, UK X Factor. Simon Cowell pretty much brought this band together, Little Mix, and they dropped their fifth album this past weekend called LM5. Very creative name, obviously. It's interesting because when I was doing a little bit of research about them, I hadn't really heard much about this group. They're pretty enormous over in the UK. Like Their last album in 2016, Glory Days, was on, in the, on the top 40 charts for almost 90 weeks. Pretty absurd. I mean, that's basically, since it's been put out, it's been a top 40 album. It seems like a couple of their singles over the, off that album have really propelled it to stay on the list. So I'm, I'm wondering, why haven't I heard of this group? And maybe listening to this album, told me a little bit about it. There, there wasn't really anything that stood out to me about this album, anything that really caught my attention. It seemed very like paint-by-numbers pop album for the time. You know, w- w- the way you pitched this group to me was, what, they're kind of like, what was the band they used? Fifth Harmony. Yeah, you're like they're, they're the UK version of Fifth Harmony. Fifth Harmony blows these guys out of the water in my book. I find them so much more interesting, and their vocals so much more interesting, especially.
1: What did you think of
0: of this little mix album and, and just them as a group in general?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's that's how they came into my orbit a few years ago. Was just I was reading something about Fifth Harmony, you know, U.S. based pop quintet that was put together via a singing reality competition and you know some the piece was constructed something along the lines of, you know fifth harmony but do you know little mix they're very similar you probably like them too you know something like that and i think the reason they didn't make as much inroads in the u.s at least until recently is partially because fifth harmony's dominance at the time they've since split up and have gone solo so i think you know that that space of you know girl group pop group Mm-hmm. They're in the same lane, so they were just kind of occupying, you know, their own sides of the Atlantic, I guess. And also, you used to spoke to it—the sounds of Fifth Harmony. I think mean, there's there's unique sounds. Everyone knows Camila Cabello. Normani is also popping off, right? Mm-hmm. And like, you can easily identify that. And I don't think for Little Mix, at least not yet, we have quite that like singular vocals that you can like pick out, and. Ultimately, it is lazy just to compare them just to Fifth Harmony. But if we're just thinking of that in broadly pop music, you know, I think like the pop records we've talked about this year, Robin recently, Ariana Grande, Camilla. I think, like you said, Little Mix is, well, I don't want to say generic, but doesn't stand out from the pack as much as those other records that earlier in the year. And I think that's probably what's hurt them, with branching out beyond their big UK base, which is established and, like you said, very successful, you know I think they've had their moments. Songs like uh, "Black Magic" I think is really good, but I didn't really have that many songs jump out at me on LM Five. And well, I think some of these will inevitably do big streaming numbers, like you know pop groups usually do. Um, you know I don't know if this would do much to grow their base over here. I mean, the lead single was with Nicki Minaj, obviously that's a play for the for the states, but. I think that song's fine. I, I don't know how successful it'll be, but I mean, what was your read as someone who know, is familiar with Fifth Harmony and has listened to plenty of pop this year? I mean, did you did you really see anything that could pop out to you? The thing I think that stood out
0: most to me was how much they seem to be trying to find a hit that will really catch on in America. You know, yeah. like like Wasabi or what was the other one that sounded like Wasabi? Oh, Stripper. Like those two songs sound very almost like migos influence or like hip-hop influence where they're trying radio almost like place, rapping. for sure yeah and they're they're going with a very specific sound you know they had uh love a girl right which kind of infuses like latin almost like carlos santana uh, mixed with like rob thomas type sound to it and it's it's not smooth, trendy i'll put it that way it's just like they were we're gonna put out this type of song or this type of song and see which one really like caught and it just left me feeling like they didn't really have an identity that they feel comfortable with that they're trying to like almost kind of like the conversation we were having with the underachievers where they're trying to find whatever will propel them to that next level and for them it's this the next level here in the united states which I, I don't knock the hustle but i would much rather hear something like you know another black magic not the same thing obviously but evolving in that sound rather than just trying to find uh whatever right. will catch on here be true to yourself i guess this is like the yeah. main thing although i gotta say the Cure. Very catchy song that definitely stuck with me. Um, if I had to pick one song off the album, that'd be the one I come back to. Any any that really hit for you? Uh,
1: I thought Jonah Vark was interesting. Just I mean, there's a few moments here on this album, that's song with Nikki as well, where like there's mm. you know female empowerment themes, feminist themes in general. But ultimately, I feel like a lot of times they're pretty surface level, and it's like they're not actually saying as much as you, you think when you first start listening to it. So, again, those are songs that I probably wouldn't go back to as much, but yeah, I think you hit it. Like, there are songs in here that are just straight up catchy. It's catchy pop music, and you know, there's a science to it in a certain degree. Right? I think Ed Sheeran actually wrote a song or two on this as well. They'll be fine off this against their fifth album. They're gonna do big numbers, but like you said, I don't know if there was much artistic ambition on LM5, unfortunately.
0: Well, Someone that seems to have a little bit more artistic ambition, Kirk Knight from Joey Badass's hip hop collective Pro Era. It's a very Wikipedia line right there. <laughs> so I don't even know is this album I I I W I I like how how I'm, actually, I'm not
1: actually sure to be honest. Yeah. It's funny he he he's kind of played with conventions before because last year uh, he released the Nick at Night project with Nick Caution, another Pro Era member. You know, and Nick Caution spelled N Y C K, mm-hmm. so they spell it differently. So they he likes to play with those, those uh, phonetics, I guess. But yeah, I'm not actually sure how you say it, but this new tape just dropped from Kirk Knight. Was this your first exposure to him, his solo material? I mean, I'm, you've heard his features and his production on Joey's work before, but like, did you ever listen to any of his solo stuff before? You know, actually, when
0: I was clicking through a couple of his bigger hits, and there was one that I think I had heard before. The thing about him, I think, when I was listening was this was a very inconsistent record for me. Like, there were some songs that really... Stood out, and I was like, "Oh, this there's something here. There's this is really awesome." Then there were songs I was like, oh, "Not so sure about that one." Uh, also, it was "I Know" featuring Mick Jenkins. I think I had heard that one before somehow. Right? Maybe like maybe it was like a rap caviar song or something like that at some point. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so like I, when I think about this record and I think about the songs on it that really stood out to me, like a song like like Leverage or Mo. I feel I felt like when it would like that song would end and then the next song I would be like eh, I'm not really into this then the next song I'd be like oh there's something here Then the next song not so much and I felt like that's kind of how it was throughout the record like it would pull me in and then I'd be sucked back out pretty quickly what did you think it sounds like you're way more familiar with him than I am
1: yeah well it's interesting because he's not the first solo artist to pop off from PE you know I mean it started with the late capital stees and joey obviously then like cj fly started making some music caution as i just mentioned then kirk knight originally was just a producer with NPE, and then he put out late night special in 2016 and that's an album that's actually quite different than this one where very similar and it almost was like he didn't quite have enough personality on that tape you know it's still mm-hmm. competent flows competent rhyming and with that new york sound it sounds like a someone who's in joey's orbit but it just didn't didn't quite land. And then you have this one, like you said, I think he tries so many different things on this, you know, only thirty five minute tape. And whether that's singing like singing hooks or just like weird deliveries, and then he goes back into more of his like boom bap inspired normal normal flows, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, track to track, it's not cohesive. He's just jumping all over the place doing these things. And on one hand I respect it because he's clearly trying to grow as an artist and I think Mm following up last year's Nick and Night, which was hit really hard and was, you know, more uh, Boombap-inspired, mm. having this come out where he's showing a bunch of different things I think is cool, but, you know, there are songs on here that I think just stink, like Tom Clancy, uh, <laughs> Downtime, and TML. I thought that was a very weak uh, sequence. Yep. But, you know, earlier songs like Duffel Bag and Different Day I Thought Were Dope and Run It Back Freestyle, very yeah. classic P.E. sound. So, you know, he's a talented dude. He's already been making beats even longer than rapping. So I think this is a almost like a cool intro introduction to him for people just because again, there's a lot here and, uh, and not all good, but you know, I'm going to keep watching out for Kirk and what he does, you know, within and without outside of PE. Yeah, definitely. Um, wasn't expecting all the different uh, lane shifts on the short mixtape. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: Running back freestyle is probably the one that stood out most, uh, just because he goes so hard on that track. I, I was like, Oh, this is went like immediately on my run playlist. Uh, something I'm definitely going to be coming back to. And if you want to catch the songs that we're talking about um, on these two albums as well as the upcoming one, Oxnard, please check out our Nostalgia Best of 2018 playlist on Spotify and give us a follow on there as well. Yes, low no! Time <laughs> for our guy, Anderson Pock, album number three. Solo album number three, I should say. Correct. Venice, Malibu. And now Oxnard. You know, Anderson Pocket, we, we reviewed Malibu. I, I, maybe you did solo. I can't remember when we
1: first started up, right? It, well, it that came out January 2016, like right before we started the podcast. So we we didn't, I don't think we really talked about it until we did end of year. I yeah. know I had it number three in my albums of 2016. Um, I don't think we talked about Yes Law, the project with Knowledge, the producer as well. So yeah, this is really the first project we're talking about as it's come out for him, you know, given that post-Malibu. You know, he got a song in an Apple commercial, toured with Bruno Mars, and then, you know, went away for a little bit. So this is really the first time we've had a chance to really talk about him in the moment.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of crazy because I feel like, I mean, we obviously have actors, musicians that we highlight a lot on here and we ride for. I feel like uh, between us both, uh, since you turned me on to him back in 2016, Pac's been one one of our favorites, one of the people we've been most excited for, most anticipating his album this year. It's finally here. Oxnard, what's what's your take on it, Dave? Good album? Bad album?
1: I really, really like it. I think it might be my album of the year right now. Ooh. Um, definitely, obviously, that's a tentative statement. Not Don't hold me to that yet. I'll put it in stone in, in a month. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's funny because Malibu, I, I think, is probably a better record than Oxnard. And I had Malibu number three in 2016. But that's really just because Malibu came out in a year that Kanye and Chance also made music. Uh, not really it's Slate Against Anderson. And really good albums, too. Right. And Oxnard, it's funny, because I was reading some reviews, and it's funny where I feel like I'm I'm one of the few people that's like, this is capital G, great. And most people are like, oh, no, this is lowercase g, good. You know, there's some issues. And I'm like, yeah, there's some issues, but I still think what what works here works so well that it's like, I mean, how can you hate? So, I, I, I really like the project, but what did you think?
0: I, I liked it a lot. I'm not putting it as my album of the year. Um, I think that Janelle Monet is still holding that crown for me but the thing about this album for me is there are definitely some songs that I I found myself not going back to so much but there's so much especially in the back half of this album that I found myself coming back to constantly throughout the weekend and just thinking about a lot the features alone on this and how Pac was able to pull I mean great features out of Kendrick, Q-Tip, Cole who sounded amazing, Snoop Dogg who I don't know where this verse came from, but if Snoop, <laughs> if Snoop Dogg could replicate this all the time, he would be relevant constantly. I mean, it's he's obviously still such a huge name, but just the level he got to on this is unbelievable. Um, and then BJ, the the Chicago kid, also mm-hmm. delivered on his. I obviously really liked it. It's going to be in my top 10 for sure, probably top five. But you, you talked about the things that you felt worked worked really well. What were those things that stood out most to
1: you? What makes Anderson so interesting, I mean, ever since he uh, popped up on Compton, Dr. Dre's last album 2015, he had six features on and that. That's really where damn near everyone first heard of him, right? It was obviously a big look for him. And then obviously Dre helped him make Oxnard, and he's featured on here as well. And ever since that point, and then obviously Malibu Venice, he, right, all, all that, Anderson's always stood out because he he can do so many different things. I mean, he was an XXL freshman, but it's really hard to just call him a rapper, right? Mm -hmm. He obviously raps, and he brings soulful and funky uh, stylings to rap, but you know, he also has, like, an amazing ear for drums, and this is all within this, you know, uniquely raspy voice, so he's such a unique vocalist that does so many different things, all while having an ear for multiple genres almost all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't call any of his project rap albums, even though he raps on lots of his projects. The majority of the time, he is, in in fact, rapping, right? And I think that's what's just so cool about him, because he's so unique, and it's like, yeah, we can find parallels to Kendrick and Chance if you want to find them. But I feel like he ultimately is his own guy. And I think he made songs on this on Oxnard that, you know, can stand up with his other big smashes and the songs that really sound like this uh, quintessential Anderson .Paak songs. Now, while I don't think there is something as high and, and great as probably a come down for Malibu, I don't think we have that here. I think we do have, you know, songs like Six Summers, and savior's mm-hmm. road and then even some of the songs that are heavy in the features like my brother's key breath think these are dynamite songs and you know i think they, they, they'll go into his his you know single canon so mm-hmm. i um and then i mean almost all the songs i really dug and i've been going back to a lot of them i think who are you a song that is probably the most rapid he's ever been um you know and maybe that sacrificed a little personality in the process but you know like he he, ultimately across the album he doesn't really change who he was you know he's still a guy who likes to rap about the way he likes ladies right like he's very Mm -hmm. hedonistic almost misogynistic guy in a certain sense but because he comes at it in a unique unique way it's like not only tolerable but it's almost always amusing you know Mm -hmm. so i don't i thought this was like incredibly on brand for anderson and like i said i think there's several songs that will be, be lofty on his you know top songs lists for sure so yeah Yeah, it's it's tough tough to find a lot to dislike on here
0: i think where a big uh critique of this album is is that
1: it feels people
0: feel like it's overly ambitious at points and it makes it hard to to deliver on all of it which uh i i think i can see that you know um like for example was it the the song smile petty which is the basically his political song? Is that no six summers is his political song? Which uh, for me it kind of hit, right. kind of didn't. I think it's catchy, and I think that there's some really good moments on that track. But overall, kind of felt like a shift away from uh, the personality he's come to be known as. Which is also probably something that he's trying to grow. Is that his personality is not just this, you know, like goofy, like you said, hedonistic. Character, he's a complex human being with complex thoughts who exists in our world. So he's obviously going to have opinions on these things. I think when he's at his best is when he is light and funny, though. Like a song like "Sweet Chicks," which is probably like the mm-hmm. least serious song in this whole album. Really, I, I found myself coming back to just because it was a lot of fun and it was. I found it incredibly funny, especially how it kind of ends the, the the girl being upset with him and uh, shoot, I guess shooting him or at least shooting at him. But just how the way he kind of transitions from all of it. I mean. It's just really fun to listen to. And he does it, like you said, over this shifting genre bending music that is funky and dancey and hip hop infused and even like disco at times like tints. I feel like you could put that with the, uh, you know, like those people doing like the the disco dancing back in the 70s. Like uh, make just make that a music video right now. It's like perfect for it. So, I mean, there's a lot to like on here. You mentioned the features. Which, and I, I was talking about them too, which ones were you most impressed by and which ones were you like, eh,
1: probably done without that? I think J. Cole's feature is really great. He's actually been an impressive feature run this year on top of KOD coming out. So I really liked him on Trippy, And then uh, probably Q-Tip on Cheers. Um, cool. Q-Tip is interesting because you could definitely see him as an influence uh, for Anderson. Both the Tribe sound and both Q-Tip specifically as a vocalist, as a uh, curator of sounds. And... Not only that, Q chip actually thought really brought it with the feature. So I think that's a really cool pairing that works really well. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, I, I think Dre it's, it's it's Dr. Dre's old. <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> I don't do not kind hate on him too much for it, but his um, delivery think, is just so strange now. He keeps it so like I saw it described as um militaristic mm-hmm. and I was like, Yeah, that sounds about right. Um he loves to go to the gym now too. Um <laughs> And then push to the T, you know. I think I, I really like Push's in uh, fitting with the theme of the song. I really liked his comments about uh, malice, you know, talking about clips mm-hmm. and stuff. I thought that was cool. Um, and then the Kendrick feature, I think ultimately is like a disposable Kendrick feature, but it okay. fits the song really well. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just like this. I actually, technically, it's the the lead single from this because "Bubble is an on Oxnard. But you know, I think that that was still good. So yeah, there wasn't any features I disliked. I thought B J. Chicago Kid again was was really good on "Sweet Sweet Chick." He's always really good, um, mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of the song The Dreamer at the end of Malibu. Um, yeah, so I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think The Chase and Hedlow, the first two songs, you know, I, I probably find those songs more yeah. the least memorable ones, but like mm-hmm. you said, once you get into the middle and back half of this album, it just really doesn't stop.
0: Yeah, it hits a groove, and
1: it just kind of, you just ride with it.
0: Yeah, you know, just uh, one thing I did want to highlight in that, in Sweet Chick, uh, he does give a Gotye reference, which, I mean, any rapper that that's mixing in a, a Gaultier line, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm here for it. So, um, Anderson Pock Oxnard, Certified Fresh by Nostalgia Pod, definitely check it out. We'll have a couple of songs on our playlist again, so uh, please follow that and tell all your friends about Anderson Pock. He's probably one of the most underrated performers out there right now for the quality he's putting out consistently. Um, oh, also the I, I loved how he shouted out Mac in one of the songs. Absolutely. Obviously, uh, he released Dang with Mac uh, or featured on Mac's album. So, um, you know, definitely uh, still a loss. You know, Mac still is still a loss that I think a lot of the music industry is feeling pretty heavily. Wrapping it up there for music today. We got three pretty big-time movies to talk about. Why don't we start with The Coen Brothers? Dropping a Netflix movie. What, what am I supposed to make of this, Dave? The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, this feels like probably the best made for Netflix movie that i can recall i mean i haven't seen roma yet so i'll withhold right. my yeah my judgment on that until that comes out the trailer looks incredible um but i mean it, it almost like takes what netflix is so a lot of people just just binge watching tv shows and it's like all right so we're going to put this on a format where people binge watch here's like six different stories and we'll just let people binge watch these all in one sitting.
1: Netflix's whole plans this year with Balladbuster Scruggs, with Roma, with, uh, you know, they're releasing these films in small, limited releases in theaters, which is going directly against their ethos they were ascribing to as early as the beginning of the year, right? Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because the Coen brothers, Alfonso Cuaron, are to the most influential successful filmmakers we have right now so they probably have some pull with putting a project on netflix but i think it also speaks a little bit to the changing of of the times you know both the way netflix's worldview and also the way people are accepting netflix um in terms of the traditional industry but yeah i mean is this the best made for netflix movie they have it you know, I think it is until Roma comes out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, what, what's in the competition? Uh, Private Life came out earlier this year. It's supposed to be great. Okja, maybe.
0: Okja's pretty good.
1: There, there, there's only a handful that are, like, truly great, you know? There's other movies that are just good, you know, like your War Machines, your Merowitz mm-hmm. stories, stuff like that. But, yeah, I think I think that's, that's an interesting interesting title to bestow on Scruggs for a few weeks until Roma comes out. But, you know, it's interesting just because the whole genesis of this, this project was initially described to us as like an anthology series being on Netflix. And the Coens said like last week that they were never going to do this as a TV series because they don't like doing TV because it's too open ended. And I'm like, why didn't they tell us that two years ago? Like, right. <laughs> why didn't no one know that's how they felt? You know, so I, again, I don't really know if that's, that's ultimately 100% true, but that's what they said. And I thought it was interesting that they would do, you know, this, these six stories that are totally unconnected, but thematically, you know, all in line together. And it's and throughout the way it has a lot of the things that the Coen brothers are known for, whether it's, you know, it's like punchy dialogue that is surprisingly funny at like weird moments and, you know, quirky characters. I think a lot of the the and then uh, and then heady bigger themes on top of everything. I think this is a lot of what the Coen brothers uh, do best. And, you know, it's not definitely not their best movie. They had, that's a, a high bar to, bar to, bar to hit. But uh, I was quite impressed. Honestly, I really liked it.
0: Yeah, you know, I thought it was good, and I could tell. I mean, it's it's Cohen Brothers. It's top of the top, like you said, one of the most influential, two of the most influential uh, directors we have. I didn't find myself loving this, and I think where I felt like I, I wasn't really catching for me um, was because it's six different stories. I found myself connecting with some other, some over others, and with it being short, that's that's fine. Like I, I'll. Watch a 20, 25 minute episode and be like, okay, no skin off my back there. But it just ended up like almost similar to Kirk Knight bringing me in and out. Like the, uh, what's it called? Near Al- Algodones. Uh, definitely right. so James right. Franco. Yeah, with Franco. Bank I, didn't, one. I didn't find myself that interested in that one. Then we get to Meal Ticket in All Gold Canyon, and those ones really hit for me, and those ones really pulled me in. Um, especially All Gold Canyon. Um, shout out Tom Waits. He was, yeah, he was an awesome. Right? one. Yeah, he was probably the, the the standout performer in all of this for me. And It really just was uh, kind of was feeling up and down, which I guess is how you connect with the story and what feels personal um, to you. Um, and it's it's fine. But it, for Coen Brothers, it did leave me feeling a little bit disappointed and a little bit like, eh, I don't know if this is... Uh, I, I think it was not what I expected either, which probably was a knock for me as well.
1: Sure. And I mean, yeah, I think to totally like buy in, I mean, you have to kind of just accept for like, what is like their message? And again, it's tough to ascribe like a message to Cohen's. obviously that it's always been tough to pin them down, but I mean, what is it in this one? Like the finding brevity or not brevity, um, levity in, in death. Is that, is that really what the theme is? You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but de- death was definitely a theme throughout and this was, you know, uh, and they're making light of it at all turns, whether it starts off with the Ballad of Busters, proper, or uh, mm-hmm. near Algodones, like you said, I think that might be one of the weaker ones, uh, but also it's the shortest one, so it doesn't really overstay its right. welcome. Um, and then The Mortal Remains, the very last one, The Stagecoach, that was probably my least favorite uh, mm-hmm. story, but that was really more of like a conclusion story, you know, they are just kind of like hashing it out for the viewer, the themes, I guess, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and then, you know like i'll watch brendan gleason true scenery anyway and that was, that's fine with me <laughs> sure. but yeah i thought um my favorite ones were meal ticket all gold canyon and the, the gal who got rattled
0: yeah the gal who got rattled you know it's funny because they had they had moments in this like the the shootout with the indians and in, or the native americans in this when i was just like yeah they're really good at this like this is like, reminded me a lot of, like, No Country Fold Men, like, some of those scenes. uh, It just uh, they really do what they do well, but I think, you know, to to what you were saying before, if we can't really find, like, the overarching storyline or the overarching point in all this, it almost feels like there's something that didn't come across by the way that they intended it to, um, or maybe they're expecting people to take from it what they want, but I did leave a lot of these feeling like, I don't really know if I got what they were trying to say there, and I think that for me that detracts a bit from it um overall it's a netflix movie and like i said if you, if i can watch something at home um i'm gonna give it some extra points for me like make it as available to me as possible so uh i think that this will you know probably like a 70 75 um i was wondering where it fell for you and your Cohen brothers like rankings if you have them or if you have like uh ones that you like and ones that you dislike
1: yeah no so that's a good question um I think the Coen brothers, they're largely discussed in terms of early Coen brothers and then contemporary Coen brothers. And I guess now we're really in late Coen brothers. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not super well-versed in the early stuff, unfortunately. I haven't seen Miller's Crossing. I haven't seen Barton Fink. I really mm-hmm. want to watch those movies at some point. But obviously this movie doesn't compare to Fargo or Big Lebowski. It doesn't right. compare to No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Uh now, No Country for Old Men, True Grit, and Battle struggles. those are the three Westerns, right? But mm-hmm. they're all very different films. But, you know, in terms of, you know, I think um, I'd probably have this, I have this above Hail Caesar, I'd say. Yeah, I think Hail definitely. Caesar. Um, what about and w- Davis? Quite enjoyable, white, funny. I liked, um, but uh, honestly, the, the biggest takeaway, of course, is the Alden Ehrenreich scene from that movie. Yeah. Um, I, I think I like Inside and Davis more. That's an interesting one, because that's a movie that wasn't quite what I expected when I saw it. You kind of had to accept that's a story about, you know, just missing out, like, pseudo-failure, right? Um, you know, I haven't seen Burn After Reading since I saw it in theaters, so I don't have a good opinion on that, and I haven't seen A Serious Man, so... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's um, it's tough, because it's a high bar. You know, like, I, I don't... I haven't seen any... I've seen, I haven't seen all of them, but the ones I... I don't dislike any of their movies that I've seen, so. so... But yeah, I have it above Hail Caesar, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it pretty much falls probably in near like the middle to the back half for most people um, seems like you probably have your Cohen favorites and this isn't gonna crack anybody's like top five but it's it's still quality and it's good like the Cohen brothers kind of like like pizza even when it's not their best it's still really exactly movies, it's not gonna so. offend anyone uh, definitely uh, check it out because it's not gonna cost you anything other than your regular net Netflix subscription which pretty much everybody has at this point anyway so not a cost something that talked about a lot of heavy costs widows steve mcqueen's was his fourth movie now uh follow up to 12 years a slave which he won the oscar for best picture for um i mean it's got a star-studded cast led by viola davis uh daniel kaluuya liam neeson i mean just to name pretty much by the top three i mean colin farrell's in there brian tyree henry it's pretty uh it's pretty, pretty stacked <laughs> yeah um widows it, it's it's interesting we were talking before we started recording i had a very very lively uh crowd with me people that were whooping and hollering and oohing and on at the twists and turns of this movie um you know it's billed as a heist movie that is really so much more but it didn't really do that great in the box office it's you know doesn't have a it's 92 rotten tomatoes with the critics but i if i'm recalling it i think you mentioned this too it's not really doing getting a lot of great reviews with, with fans what did you think i mean i loved it but i'm wondering if i was in the minority here.
1: no no i love this movie i think this i think widows is okay. absolutely fantastic um but yeah it got a b cinema score or is it a b plus i forget which is you know, in terms of cinema score, that's kind of low. It's like yeah. Justice League. You know, that's disappointing. Um, and on top of that, it missed box office est- uh, estimates. It hit twelve million. That's not a lot, and it's a cheap movie, forty million dollar budget. But it was underseen and uh, kind of lukewarmly received by audiences. Which I it just—it's tough for me to wrap my head around, just because I don't know how you can watch Widows and be like fuck, I didn't I didn't love this film, you know? I mean, it's a heist movie that, like, transcends normal heist movies because it tackles everything else that crime is actually about in real life, which is something you don't get from crime movies almost every single time, you know? It's a movie with women leads, about women, that's not just doing it to be about women, you know? It just happens to exist and be about women, you know? <laughs> Like anywhere you look, there's things like we mentioned the cast. There's so many good performances in this movie, and I think it's a generally thrilling ride. And like it, it makes the story not about the 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 plot itself. It's not about the the actual robbing. It's not about the action. That's all truncated in Act Three, right? It's about it's about the storytelling and the the grander themes. And I, you know, I thought it's interesting because Steve McQueen, his first three films are all uh, feature films are all very relentless and very tough to watch more than once because they're very um, you know, punishing to the characters on screen. And Widows is not that. I think Widows is has slightly funny moments, good action and, and tons of character moments. it's a nice genre shift for Steven McQueen, but also a tonal shift for him too. So I uh I really liked it as a fan of his earlier work, but even if you weren't familiar with him, I think you know i think this is an incredibly pro- crowd pleasing film um but clearly that wasn't the case kind of surprising
0: it it definitely surprises me and i think um you know when i think about this movie I, I, there's so many things about it that really stand out like pretty much everybody gave a really strong performance um the it was a really great script and like i said there were twists and turns so there's even if you're not like, you don't really care about, like, the cinematography or any of that sort of stuff. It's just a fun story, and it's a great heist movie. I mean, I, I was, like, gripping the edge of my seat when they finally did, pull like, go in and pull the heist off, um, and, I mean, it's hard for me to, I guess, make sense of why people might not like it, especially because, I mean, Steve McQueen, uh obviously one of the best up and i don't even know if you can say up and coming one of the best directors we have right now um and he lets all these characters and all these actors just ball out like viola davis in this i mean we already know that she's great we don't really need to go into why viola davis is great but (laughs) she has a pretty difficult like lead role because she's dealing with all this grief and all this like uh confusion and kind of just like on the edge of things the whole time while also having to hold it together and figure out how to pull off a heist when she's never done anything like like this before she's just like piecing life together at that point um you have symphony arrivo who like Irvo Irvo comes in like halfway through the movie and just is like this rocket on screen and adds like so much like weight and like badassness you have Elizabeth to who probably whose character probably has the most growth and probably the most satisfying um, character arc, I'd say, throughout. And then on the other side, of things you got David Tyree or Brian Tyree Henry, um, and Colin Farrell like showing like going toe to toe like the whole time. It's like how can you like not like what's happening here? Um, and I think maybe it's not that people don't like it, but uh, I think when you have movies like. The Crimes of Grindelwald, which we're going to get to. A lot of people probably said, I'm going to go see that this weekend, and I'll go see Widows over the Thanksgiving break or something like that. Um, I basically just gushed about it. Um, maybe a good place to start in breaking down what we liked about the movie is um, McQueen, I think, had a lot of, like, signature moments in this, but what stood out to you most about his direction um, or just his overall, like, touch on the film?
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned cinematography. I think it stands out. There, there's some really nice moments with the camera, where Colin Farrell leaves the uh, the the event in the district, and it, the camera is not on his conversation in the car. It's just put on the hood of the car. and You're just watching him drive from like the poorer areas in the district to the affluent mansion that he lives in, like ten minutes away. You know, not and even it, it's like a, five. It's right. And it's a really smart. Uh, way to show the audience, and just you know, sh- show the the wealth gaps that exist in in Chicago. It's a it's an accurate depiction of, of you know uh the gentrification of Chicago and uh, the the haves and the have nots and whatnot. So I think that was effective both in and out uh, of of the story. Um, and then the camera also really twirls around Kaluya a lot when he's uh doing his menacing um, in the gym mur- murdering. The the basketball scene in the gym, most most uh, uh, importantly, which is funny, the two guys he killed were the cool kids, the rap dude, crazy, (laughs) Chuck English and Sir Michael Rocks. Fucking, I didn't quite recognize at first. I was like, I I recognize Sir Mikey Rocks. I was like, is it? And then I read about it later. I was like, fuck, I want to watch it again now that I'll be looking for it. But yeah, the way the camera like pans around him and then Orwin will focus on his face when his goons were doing stuff for him. Right, Um, smart touches. And the only thing, the only choice I think he made in this film that I would question and I don't have a big problem with it with other people, but I saw it being mentioned was the flashback scene with Viola Davis and Liam Neeson's son uh, in the car. I think that scene, it, it, it doesn't flesh out, you know, police violence on, on black, black men, black youths that well. And the rest of the movie ta- tackles issues in a smarter way. So it almost is like this was like hand fisted into the film a little bit. We really need that flashback for Viola Davis's character arc, you know? And then the meta story, Steve McQueen is a British man and it's almost like, here's your commentary on America's problems. So it's like, I, I didn't think it took away from the film, but I do think it was a little sloppier than most of the rest of the film. So, uh, you know, I think that, that that's a uh, he tripped a little bit with that, but yeah, I think he uh he killed it, and um, it's uh, you know, it's it, he he's a director that's not that famous, but he should be
0: absolutely. And I agree with everything you said, the like signature cinematography moments in this are fantastic. I think what I was most impressed with was um, how him and Gillian Flynn wrote this story that is a heist movie, but it also encompasses politics and racial uh, relationships and and undertones. And uh, there's so much that goes into it and it's written so well and paced so well while it's it's able to cover all these things and do it in a way that feels not rushed or like he's not serving all those different parts. Um, I thought that was just incredibly impressive. And um, I left being like, Man, there was so much in that, but they really, um, I don't think, underserved anything. So definitely impressive. Um, The one thing I I think I, I mean, two moments really stand out to me that I didn't like. Uh, Linda, played by Michelle Rodriguez, um, when she goes to the architect's house, that whole scene and like ending up making out with him, I found to be like, (laughs) what? And I'm sure that's probably just to kind of try to give her character depth uh, in terms of like how she's grieving and handling it. Uh, also not enough carrie coon man like you got carrie coon she she gets what three scenes maybe in the whole thing um i want more carrie coon in my life um and especially because uh i want to see more of how things came together with her and liam neeson's character in it um
1: yeah i think that definitely could use some some more fleshing out considering they show you kind of early that liam didn't die right so, I would agree with that. I thought Michelle Rodriguez was just a little vague as a character <laughs> yeah, uh, in this, and then Cynthia Irvo was great, right? but it was unfortunately more of a physical performance than anything else, just because you didn't have enough time to do that much else, you know uh it doesn't say track from the movie, but it just you know those, those I think those two characters were a little weaker but Debicki and Davis, obviously, are, are, are dynamite, and Debicki, like you said, uh, she arguably ha- has has the most, just because, you know, there's so much obvious, tangible, you know, change happening to her character, and, you know, another thing you mentioned that's in the script is, you know, men and, men and women's relationships, you know, I mean, her, her, her both reconciling with her, her now-dead husband, and then her you know taking up the Sugar arrangement Danny. with with lucas haas right and yeah. it's like there's a lot there and then seeing her um you know come into her own and finessing that that mom to buy her tree locks <laughs> you know it's eat that, that is, hot uh... dog
0: girl that was fucking iconic <laughs> iconic yeah.
1: so i think um overall it's uh it's a movie i would recommend a lot of people actually i thought colin Farrell was perfectly cast as well um didn't mind the accent i thought some people thought it was a little too irish i did mind the accent i I don't know what it is i
0: think maybe it's because i think about him in true detective so much now that
1: Um, like i don't even remember what it was like in true detective so it wasn't great he doesn't
0: (laughs) i feel like he doesn't do accent work well but um i i thought he was still fine in the role um i was gonna ask you because there's a lot of great performances who's the mvp of this movie for you
1: because i think viola davis has to keep the movie going, has to keep the yeah. movie together. She's probably the most important performance. Um, but taking that taking that away, I would say it's Bickie or Kaluya in terms of like pound for pound scenes in for me. But it's tough. You could you could pick a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I think uh, my MVP is Olivia, uh, the dog, because uh, she basically uncovered this whole mystery. She was fantastic, and she is definitely the better dog over charlie cooper uh, from <laughs> a star is born so that's not really a debate um now i think in, in seriousness probably for me it would be kluya just because every time he was on the screen i felt like nervous i felt intimidated he really was this amazing villain he does so much just with his eyes it's like unbelievable like just how he can sit in a chair and just like let his eyes hang and it like says so much um but debicki also you know you mentioned her character has the most like like tangible growth in the movie but the way that she goes from being this like very timid and meek character to this like badass bitch by the end was just like so cool to watch um r.i.p to bash i mean damn dude they they, they did him dirty um just to kind of wrap everything up they left things a little open-ended at the end would you want to see a sequel or a prequel to this
1: no hell no yeah well i like to see liam neeson and john berthal's crew sure what would, would i've liked to have seen more than one scene with john Bernthal? yes but <laughs> and would i like to see tyree henry's wrath once he finds out his brother died and he got chipped out of the election and he didn't get his money sure but that's not what the movie's about. So I don't, we don't we don't need that, you know. It's kind of right. like making a Sicario sequel.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I I I have a feeling we will get one and it probably won't be Steve McQueen directed, but
1: d, but d, really? Cuz this didn't make any money. So why would they make a sequel, you know?
0: I, I think it'll be up for awards probably though.
1: Yeah, it probably will. It's it's probably going to the best picture bubble.
0: Um Th- this is going to have a be, like a good back end to it just because I think people are going to hear about it at awards time they're going to see it. it's the highest movie with all these characters and people will end up seeing it in february and march so we'll, we'll see I, I don't know i'd like to see a prequel i mean like you said bernthal getting one scene and having that that motor was that motorcycle or dirt bike in his like living room like i just need to know why he did that and also he seemed to be doing an accent with it i want to know like what that was all about i got i got questions but Overall, Widows again certified fresh. Check it out. We we really like it. And I, I have a feeling we're gonna see Viola Davis at the award shows. At least getting nominations, and hopefully McQueen too. Something I don't think is gonna be getting many award nominations. At least not in the major categories. Fantastic Beast: The Crimes of Grindelwald. David Yates behind the helm again for another Harry Potter universe movie. What this? He's done six now. So he did four.
1: He started with Order of the Phoenix back in '07, and he's done. So. Order, Prince, Hollows 1 and 2, and now Beasts 1 and 2, and they will do the last three as well, as far as we know. So he's been doing it for, like, what, 11 years. He, he's their man. He's Warner Brothers' guy.
0: The script was written by J.K. Rowling, the creator of the Harry Potter universe, and this movie is sitting at a crisp 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it has only, like, 92 positive reviews, like 140 panned ones. Not Not a great ratio there. I liked this movie a lot more than I liked the first Fantastic Beasts. Interesting. I, th- I think it, when I talked on here, I said I pretty much fucking hated that movie. <laughs> I, I think I found Newt Scamander to be a character I just did not care about. And uh, the golden boy, Eddie Redmayne. Um, he, he gave a fine performance, but I just felt like there wasn't a lot there that I was super intrigued by. This at least left me a lot more intrigued and looking forward to the other movies. And I think what I liked more about this is it's a shift away from new and it's really becoming the Dumbledore story and you know, the Dumbledore backstory, which I mean, yes, give me the Dumbledore backstory. However, and this is kind of where I'm going to let you take the ball here. Uh, Dumbledore is a very important character to a lot of people because in Harry Potter books, he was, I mean, the patriarch of things in, in a sense. And, yeah. uh, He's the kind of character you really can't fuck up because if you do, there's gonna be a lot of people that are pretty disappointed and unhappy with it. I guess I wonder if you like this movie is my first question, but second, with it becoming the Dumbledore story, is this the sort of thing where you feel like they're leaving in a place where this is going in the right direction with that,
1: yeah, so a lot of meat on that bone, yeah,, uh-huh. I'll let you chew Let's where see. you want. To. Yeah, I th- I think the movie stinks. Oh, I think it's way worse than the first one. Wow. And and that is because Fantastic Beast Two, Fantastic Beast: The Crimes of Grindelwald, does not stand alone by any stretch of the imagination. This movie does not function except to set a table for Fantastic Beast Three, and nothing that happens in this movie is as interesting as the cliffhanger you leave at the end. And I don't think the movie functions as well as the first one. The first one has issues. I don't love the first one. But the first one just has a basic narrative that is easy to comprehend. This movie does not have that. This movie is, what, two hours and 15 minutes long, yet nothing happens in it. That feels consequential at all. You have all this payoff about Credence and Leader of Strange, played by the queen Zoe Kravitz. The queen. And yet it doesn't land. Because you truncated that whole story with her, I think th- I think the movie the movie just has so many issues and you know it made thirteen million less in its opening weekend than Fantastic Beasts One and this also Fantastic Beasts One it had a cinema score this one has a B plus that is a bad drop in terms of just straight audience polling and yes it made two hundred fifty three million global it's going to be financially successful it's not an issue but I just think that you know whether this is all to blame on Jake Gyllenhaal or not I don't know but she's getting a lot like George Lucas did with the prequels where, and I think the problem about this problem is she is the sole personal screenwriting credit for these Fantastic Beasts movies. In terms of Grindelwald, I just don't think the story she wants to tell, which I have no problem with her telling her stories, I just don't think she's the right person to fit that onto a screenplay. Two, a two-hour film is not 600 pages mm-hmm. of a novel, right? It's true. And, you know, I think... I mean, we can just go down this. I think, like you said, I think Eddie. I think Eddie Redmayne. I, I do not like Newt as a character. I just find his uh his stat. You know, he's an intro, introverted, meek guy. I, I just don't enjoy enjoy him. But I think Eddie Redmayne's performance is strong. Sure. Uh, doing that, he's a talented actor. um I think the best moments for Newt are unfortunately moments that have really nothing to do with the story, <laughs> right? Like when he's just being his magic zoologist self in his amazing magical suitcase right taking care of the animals oh, yeah. that shit's cool right and, and it, it, it's tender and it really you know flushes out his character and why he is a you know a, a bastion for hufflepuffs right mm-hmm. but the problem is shout out everything was right you know they get they get too much hate uh, that being said i'm not hufflepuff the problem is newt and the beasts feel so removed from everything that you're telling us is important about this story if you just wanted to tell the, the Dumbledore story, do we really need to make the crutch, the beasts? Because unfortunately, I felt like the beasts were a crutch in this movie. Every time they came up, apart from inside his magical case in the beginning, I just felt like they were slowing us down, detracting us from the movie. Yeah, you know, they were just like, all right, here's our here's our, our special effects scene. Here's our, uh, our our showiness, right? I just it slowed us down.
0: Okay, you up? I actually disagree with you on that because when I think about the like the main moments of it, it was almost like. They were just used as like, oh, shit, we're, we need to get out of the situation. We need to do something that's impossible. We're going to let the creatures do it. Like, uh, you know, they're in the French Ministry of Magic and there's no way out. So he pulls out. I forgot what the name of that big lion like creature was that like gets them out of the situation or, oh, they're stuck inside that cell. Oh, good. Pick it. will get us out of it. Or uh, okay. we need to get that that thing on Grindelwald's chest. Like, what is that? And I forgot that other creature <laughs> i'm forgetting all of them the duck like one N- niffler yes the niffler the the niffler will get it so like it's almost like oh we have no solution for this so we're just going to get a creature to do it and which i don't i don't think that that's a good thing i just think it's i i, I don't think they really get the creatures more to do than just be like
1: solutions to problems rather than just being a part of it. the way they use the beasts in terms of like help newt solve the stories i think again I think that's fine but you you kind of said in the beginning where they're just taking the story away from newt and i just feel like we've invested too much in his creatures that are sticking around with him as well as the other ones that are going to come and go that it just it just feels hard for newt and his his crew to be involved in the movie going forward but they're already too far committed so i just it just feels like it's forced to me and you know we're going we're getting that dumbledore story and we can talk about the canonical questions in a second, but just Dumbledore, Jude Law is great as Dumbledore. I really like that. I like, like the Hogwarts scenes, the flashbacks and the present scenes. We don't have enough of them, unfortunately. They, they almost feel like they're in a different part of the universe with this. And on the other, side of the, the other side of the coin, we have Grindelwald, and Johnny Depp was revealed to be Grindelwald at the end of Fantastic Beasts 1, and... Bit of a like. The, what's the reveal of fantasy beast one? Oh, Grindelwald exists. Cool. We, we that, knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> and this new one, it's just like, like part of this is Depp just being a bad performer these days. He's very lethargic, very uh lazy with his line reading. But also, just I think he's an uninspired choice to play Grindelwald, who was supposed to be a handsome and charismatic guy, something that Johnny Depp used to be. Um, he's just playing Voldemort light. He's like Voldemort with slightly more nuance. And that is like, like, oh, we don't need to kill all the Muggles. They have, uh, sorry, no Mages. They have, they have some purpose to us. We, we you, you know, it's like, oh wow, uh, you're slightly less extreme. You are a, uh, you're Mussolini. You're not quite Hitler. Cool. Like, he, he just, he just feels completely underwritten so far. And again, I think that'll change because we're gonna get more of Grindelwald, more of Dumbledore, because we're gonna get more into that Unbreakable Vow and ultimately the duel they have thirteen years from after crimes of goodwill takes place the problem is that's not in this movie all that is is teased oh it is in this movie i just think it stinks yeah like credence i was really tired of credence as a plot device i just did not find it interesting <laughs> until the end like nothing <laughs> mattered to me until the end and it's just like what, what what was the point yeah you know so i was just very disappointed because like fantasy b one it introduced something really cool, and we want to talk canon here. Like, they introduced the Obscurial, right? The Obscurus with with Credence character, right? And that was kind of something that was just accepted to be what Ariana Dumbledore, Dumbledore's sister. Uh, like that was her her situation, right? It was kind of vague. We just kind of accept that that's what that is, right? And you know, that's cool and whatnot. But just like where they take that by the end of this movie, uh, it just it just feels like ultimately the way Crimes of Grindelwald what we got both can, can just confuse or disappoint a casual fan and just piss off or leave uh diehard fans very uh you know suspect of the future right so i just don't think this wins with either party but um i mean w- w- why did you like it more what what did you like of uh while we got to point b like how did you like that journey
0: yeah you know it's interesting because uh i think you make a really good point that if you're a casual fan coming into this you're gonna kind of be like Uh, okay (laughs) it doesn't like even the climax of the movie doesn't really seem to have any sort of real conclusion to it it's basically just like Grindelwald wants to uh, have people see that the ministry is really the enemy or that you know the government's really the enemy and they should be following him so he has this big thing together and then has this fire and decides you know if you want to come with me come across the fire if not like I'm just gonna kill you okay Uh, and then Nicholas Flamel out of nowhere is like oh we can save the city and this big fire monster by doing this. I found that to be kind of just like lame and confusing, um, in the sense. But what I liked about it, I think, for me, was um I felt like it I felt like it was moving in a direction that I was a lot more interested in. Um in that, you know, you're setting it up and like you said, this is a setup movie, so it, I I think your points are well taken. Um I'm way more interested in seeing Dumbledore and what could what his story's gonna look like and seeing just Jude Law get to be sexy motherfucking dumbledore. <laughs> Yumbledore. Yeah, Yumbledore, absolutely. Um I, I think I'm I, I I thought Depp was better than I think you you thought he was, especially like that last scene I think he got to kind of uh I think show some of that charisma that he used to have and used to put into his performances. I think he had some of that in that final scene. Um and I also think that I I really liked the crew and I felt very much like, ah, I kind of liked being back with these people, and I mean, the, I, I always forget the the American guy's name in this, and like,
1: uh, yeah, Jacob. Jacob
0: is, like, used as just, like, a mascot in, in this, in a lot of ways, and just, like, as, like, a weird plot device, um, but <laughs> I, I really liked, you know, like, seeing Queenie kind of struggle with her things, even though I think some of that was a little bit confusing and not really explained either, and I'm sure it probably will be in the end, but Newt I found to be a lot more uh likable and seeing like the creatures was cool um Tina, I mean, girl, you're an ore. if you're really that upset about newt getting engaged like send him a send him a letter, do some investigation like you are better than just like listening to these magazine things like things didn't make sense, but I just ended up liking it more, I think because it's drawing me into things that are nostalgic and things that I am way more interested in than seeing newt's commander try to track down creatures.
1: Right. So so you like the movie because you realize that it's just gonna set up movies you like more yes. than it. Like so there's like nothing in the moment that you like though. Like,
0: well, I mean there there are definitely scenes I liked more. Like like you said, all the stuff in Hogwarts I thought was very cool. Um I thought the scene with Dumbledore and Newt on you know, walking through Paris and going to different parts I liked a lot. Yeah, um definitely good there were some really good moments and i what i didn't like about the first one was i just found it to be like just very uninteresting in a lot of ways um and i think this may because i i don't give as much credence to the the creature part of it even though i do i do think they did a really good job of it this time and i found it really enthralling and i think the cgi in this and that i think they got some nominations for like costume on the last one probably cgi as well and
1: th- this will a lot of costumes <laughs> yeah and
0: this one deserves it as well i think the costumes i think the cgi in this are top notch if nothing else those things stand out so i think that there's a lot more to like and it yeah i guess maybe i do like it because it's setting up something that i'm way more interested in but uh if i can skip over one and just start with two from now on i'll probably do that and if i can skip over one and two and just start with three when it comes up i'll probably do that because this is a better movie but like i said i really didn't like the first fantastic piece
1: right yeah see I, the, the problem with that is i just think we're just going to get some worse diminishing returns if they stay on this path um you know but on the other hand like queenie is in a much more interesting place as a character by the end of this movie being with Grindelwald, her stats as legilimens will probably come into play there. Um, Tina doesn't really do anything in this movie, so she'll probably do more the next one. So that's positive, I guess. Uh, Nagini, thankless role, three, make three lines. She'll probably have more to do in the future, right? Dumbledore, not really in the movie. He'll have, we'll know we'll have more later. Cool. So it's, it's just, you know, like, I am interested to see what comes next, you know, two years from now. They got to shrink the cast. Um, like, Nicola... Yeah, again, well, that's why I'm glad that they changed things because, like, if Queenie was still with them, like, if it was just this, the big crew, I just don't understand how you can have them be in the story when you're clearly driving more towards the Grindelwald conflict and, and his culminating duel with Dumbledore. I just, it feels like you're conflicting with these two narratives. Um, I thought Flamel was pretty wasted, honestly. Like, he was kind of, like, throwaway fan service. Like, oh, he's here he is. There's the Sorcerer's Stone in the closet. It's going to come back later and save everyone. All right, fine, whatever. It's okay. Yeah, it's. It, Flamel's
0: <laughs> interesting because, like, it, it did feel very fan servicey, but it also felt like they're setting up this idea that there's these people all over the place who are part of some, like, larger group that is working to protect, protect things or work together, like maybe early order of the Phoenix type things. I thought that book was cool where you see Jessica Jones. Uh, pop up from ilvermorny to be like yo nick you gotta go do something man like you gotta go i, I found that to be pretty cool um y- you mentioned uh it, you know it's actually so funny because there's so many different things to talk about we barely talked about zoe kravitz and we haven't even talked about Kama at all as a character like what the fuck was
1: that <laughs> i think that whole plot line stumped. yeah like what was the point and it's like it's like you, we have this expository thing in the tomb, right, where they tell us what's really real, what's really correct, and I'm like, like when they tell us, I'm like, cool, fine. Why, why do I care? Right. You know, and like, uh, I just, I just felt like that was a, like commasal presence. It just felt like such a waste of time, just because like I don't think the payoff mattered, and and Lita like, interesting. I, I I really thought like we we see those those backstory scenes in Hogwarts and and her you know her relationship with Theseus I thought was actually actually pretty warm for what we saw mm. and then we find out that this is all because the baby cried too much and she, <laughs> as a kid so she p- pissed her child self off and she swapped the babies and somehow the parents that got the baby swapped didn't notice it wasn't their baby and then they all died anyway yeah, I was like, is is that really what we what we what we got here? Like that that that's that was what what our what our reveal was, all to tell us that credence. Just kidding, credence. Sorry, we can't help you. We don't actually know who you are.
0: No, he's Dumbledore's brother. And
1: bro. then, and then we get that, <laughs> and it's like, all, all all the hardcore fans are like, give laying out canonical reasons why this is a terrible choice, which, you know, we can slow a roll on that. Mm-hmm. You know, telling J.K. Rowling what you can can't do, right. but. And that's not really where they're coming from. I think just like the spirit of it, where I do think it's a a misdirect of sorts, and we can talk about what what that could Mm -hmm. mean, but having this whole movie lead us to just a misdirect or (laughs) flat-out lie, that's just bad storytelling and not interesting. And if we find out what happens in 3 and 4, that could make this movie even worse. So I... I just have so many issues with 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 the narrative. <laughs> so, it sounds like you didn't like the I found it very much, Dave. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the thing is as I'm watching and I'm like this is fine, it's entertaining, but it just I just felt like payoff. the payoffs at the end just felt fucking flat with me. I started shaking my head when I saw the fire fire guys. I'm like all right, never mind. <laughs> I, <I'm out." laughs> I do I do want to talk
0: about some of the the problems that this story presents to the Potter canon. But first, I just want to shout out uh I thought that scene in the beginning, though, I got so confused as to what was happening at points during it. I thought that was pretty cool. Like, a pretty cool fight scene. Gets to see Gr- uh flex a little bit. Um, sure. yeah, so, yeah, yeah they, cool. they had some cool moments. Also, all the different, like, ministries and stuff like that, I found really interesting.
1: Yeah. I think general world building is yeah. cool, and that's something that we've wanted more from this to see, And I thought that was actually something that was kind of disappointing in the first one, because, like, oh... Amer- magic in america cool we have no idea what the fuck that's like yeah. right harry potter takes place in england and it almost felt like a little underserved despite being in new york city so like seeing more of these ministry offices and just like understanding that the wizarding world isn't just the few hundred people we came to know through the harry potter story right. is cool and it, it it makes the world feel richer um you know i just think ch- there's choices again in the way of that that's all
0: yeah Rowling does a really good job of um world building but you know you mentioned before maybe she needs someone to help her out the script i I think maybe a script doctor to come in give her some notes might be helpful Uh, i wonder how much of i wonder how much she's balancing uh like movie executives wanting her to put things in like uh, this is where i want to start talking about the the canon stuff mcgonagall is like negative eight years old in, in the harry potter timeline in this movie and somehow she's like a
1: 27 year old at Hogwarts. And, and that is one of the things that just doesn't make sense. Like, the Dumbledore, thing, right. that's fine but for a second. Like, <laughs> that's just a choice of new ground. That can make sense. But, like, McGonagall's, like, time starting in Hogwarts and, like, e- even birth year has been established, not just by anyone, but by J.K. <laughs> Rowling herself, who was the arbiter <laughs> of all of this on Pottermore and on Twitter. So why did she get this wrong? And it's like, it's gotta be. as a Star Wars fan, I'm used to canon being changed. Like, this is something that, that my, my, my formative years used to tick me off, but I came to accept because it wasn't up to me. But J.K. Rowling is literally the only one making these calls. So what the fuck happened? Like, it just seems like you just forgot or chose to say fuck it and retcon. And if you want a retcon, that's fine. But you'll just have to tell everyone in a few months on Twitter that you just retconned it. You right
0: know? you know it's it's interesting i saw i saw one theory that mcgonagall was using like uh what's it called like a time shifter uh like Hermione, a, yeah, time, turner. a time turner like hermione was using uh which if, if that's the fucking case that's such a random thing to throw in there and to not explain for a whole Convoluted. fucking movie like uh especially because it's not like you could have written any any professor in there you could have just said any name uh professor
1: have been mom. Go with
0: go with Professor sheehan Okay, cool. And then you can write a whole thing about why it's Professor sheehan and who they are and give them backstory. Like they just put McGonagall in just because they know people fucking love McGonagall. It's like, goddamn. Right. Um. All right. So the Elder Wand. I mean, it, uh, this is probably the the part I'm least at least care about with all this canon stuff, only because like I understand the importance of it. Um, the wand could have gone back and forth for a number of different reasons, like. Uh, Harry disarms Draco, and that's how he gets Elder Wand in the last one. Because Draco technically disarmed Dumbledore, even though he didn't kill him. Okay. Like, there's all these, like... Right. Stuff. That's
1: why Snape gets killed, because Voldemort didn't understand Wandlord. Exactly.
0: Lord. Yeah. Um,
1: it's pretty well Lord
0: doesn't really affect me until something like this, where he doesn't have it in the first movie. How the hell does he get in the second movie if Dumbledore has been known to have the Elder Wand? Like, you need to explain these things to, like potter fans because they understand this
1: well, and we know grindelwald starts out with it. dumbledore will get it i think the assumption was that you know either grindelwald somehow didn't have it in times of fantastic beast One, which doesn't really align with what we thought we knew but the, the the more more likely scenario would be that uh newt and tina when they disarmed uh colin farrell they become the masters of the elder one it just doesn't make sense to so the fact that when we see Grindelwald be in the movie, and it's like, he just has the Elder Wand, it just feels like they didn't yada, yada, yada. pay enough attention to something they used to care to, and also that's despite the fact that they had the Deathly Hollows and Elder Wand heavily in the market. Right. So they were like, so what was it, just a, just a show for, for the hardcore fans? It doesn't work, because all the hardcore fans are like, but wait a minute, you, you skipped all these other things you used to care about, mm-hmm. you know? So... That that is interesting. I, I don't really know what the reasoning is behind that. I'm sure we'll get some explanation at some point.
0: Yeah, and something else that's going to need to be explained. So there's this blood. There's this blood pact, which is why Dumbledore can't move against Grindelwald. Why it has to be new. unbreakable vow. Um. So this this blood pact, right? So it's it, hot, Harry Potter canon. What Dumbledore and Aberforth both described to Harry was that there was a three way duel between Dumbledore. Everforth and Grindelwald after Ariana's death. Yes, or
1: resulting in it, something like that.
0: So, yeah. was this blood pack made before or after? If it was made before, how the fuck could they duel? Just because Everforth is there? Like.
1: Oh, shit. None of this, none That's of this a good question. I need sense. to think of that one.
0: Um, so, they're going to need to explain well, that. It's fu- well,
1: it's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, like, I was thinking, like, Unbreakable Valor makes sense when like, he can't move against right. him, right? But, I, you know, I kept thinking, um,. Uh, not not my idea or anything but people were like oh maybe this duel didn't really happen the way we assume it did you know some magical epic duel right like Rita yeah, Skeeter up, this, right? <laughs> but when they introduced the unbreakable vow in Crimes of Grindelwald my mind goes okay now Dumbledore is going to find a way to break the breakable vow so then he can fight him you know so that just changed my mind on that um that's a good question though you're right, another thing that doesn't make much no. sense. And then, I mean,
0: lastly, you, you, you alluded to this before. You said we, you don't think we need to give much credence to the Credence backstory that Grindelwald's giving. Credence.
1: Tell me why. Well, the reason all, all the, the hardcore fans are really up in arms is because if Credence is in fact uh, Aurelius Dumbledore, some sibling of Aberforth and Albus Dumbledore, then that means that Aberforth and Albus never acknowledged his existence when they talked about Ariana and the family to Harry and and crew. Both Aberforth did it to all three of them, and of course, more famously, when Dumbledore talked to Harry in the King's Cross chapter, one of the most famous and uh, lauded chapters in Deathly Hallows and the whole series. And the reason that King's Cross chapter is so important to everyone is because that's where Dumbledore finally is honest and forthcoming with Harry. And it really com- you know, completes the circle. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you would change this now that he was in fact still holding something from him, because there's really no explanation that you look back at that text for why he would not mention that. Oh yeah, my other brother, <laughs> and we, we kind of forgot about it. We, we had him for what? <laughs> we don't talk about it. Like no, it really takes away from the yeah. chapter. So obviously, it's not going to be just that cut and dry. So it's going to be something else whether it's a straight-up lie or it's really the Obscurus he was talking about. Remember, Dumbledore has that dark twin yeah. line at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. um, which is, leads me to what I said before, that leading up to a misdirect is just bad and uninteresting storytelling. So while I ultimately do think that that Obscurus theory, everyone's attaching to themselves for the sake of the canon they love, um, sure that makes plenty of sense, but I think we'll get some kind of explanation that isn't exactly as Grindelwald just, told, just said it, but again i think the, the narrative is uh it's uh questionable until proven otherwise right yeah now.
0: and i really hope it's that obscurest theory because if it's just grindelwald's lying damn like <laughs> talk about lazy writing what are we doing like here? you're just like oh i'm just gonna lie to end the movie to end, drop this and, huge. and here's the
1: th- and here's the thing it's like credence actually just being no one That jives with me. Mm -hmm. You know why that jives with me? Because that's what they told us Rey was in Mm -hmm. Star Wars The Last Jedi, something that I really liked. A lot of people were very mad about because they wanted it to be you know, Obi-Wan's son or whatever, right? And I think that's cool storytelling. And that that works. But now you're going to straight up tease it one way? Like, imagine if they said, Rey, you know, you kind of look like old (laughs) boy. Just kidding. You're no one. Star Wars didn't do that at least. So... Yeah, they have a lot of they have a lot of work cut out for them. in, in Definitely, three.
0: So That's for sure, uh, I mean, I'm excited to see three just because they did leave us with so much to talk about in the meantime. Um, sounds like Dave is kind of out, but I know you're still going to see the movies. There, no, right? I'm
1: excited to see it. I just think this movie itself does not function.
0: Well, <laughs> if, if you uh, if you like Harry Potter and for some reason you haven't listened to Binge Mode yet, uh, I think we both highly recommend it. Um, probably the best Harry Potter podcast out there. Um, at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, That's going to do it for us for this week. Uh, so we got uh, Little Mix. No bueno. Kirk Knight. Eh, pretty good. Oxnard. Very good. And then we got Buster Scruggs. Yeah, pretty good. Widows. Very good. And Crimes of Grindelwald. Yeah, pretty bad. Pretty bad. Shitty. Shitty. What do we got next week, Dave?
1: Uh, we'll definitely be talking about Creed 2 obviously no need to explain why uh little drummer girl six episode amc miniseries is uh, airing by wednesday night it'll all be out in, in the states uh, reviews are good michael shannon florence Pugh, scars uh excited to see that uh, john caran novel uh so we'll talk about that Romanized, wrapping up we haven't talked about that since the, the first two episodes premiered and then uh musically uh monday jid is releasing dicaprio 2 j cole signing he's really impressed with his uh, Dexterous songs recently so i'm excited to hear for hear that and then uh maybe we'll talk about rita aura first album since i think 2012 you know so that's interesting um and eventually we'll talk about uh boy race maybe green book something like that uh, when we get to them but of course more things will come up over the holiday so you know stay tuned subscribe subscribe
0: Hit that subscribe. Um, just a last thought. You mentioned Skarsgård. I was thinking if they were going to recast Grindelwald, I, I'd like to see him get that casting.
1: Honestly, yeah. I think he's actually a much better fit. Both looks like him and is more more attractive, more charismatic. Yeah, I think that's actually a great point. Uh,
0: so I hope hope they do that. Listen to us. Please, J.K. Rowling. Also, you, you, you <laughs> can't change that, that Dumbledore-King's Cross conversation. You just can't do it. I'd be out. Um, And I know you really care about my, my fandom. So anyways, until next week, peace out.